Podcast. This is Bruce. This is John. This is Trab. And this is Rich Tohoka. And maybe we'll have, uh, uh, I'm sorry, maybe we'll have Peter here a little bit later. But for now, this is the tri Games Podcast. Your podcast of figuring out how much to make a secret military base on just $25 a day, right? Brother, can you spare a dime? <laughs> We've talked about finances and various things uh, a number of times on this podcast over the last four years, but we thought we'd just talk about what it would actually take to build Hatsumi Base. Not, uh, well, actually not to build it because we, uh, I don't have any idea what that would cost, but how much it would take to run Hatsumi Base. And how does you know, IDET get its money? How does this spend its money? And what are the possibilities for you to do in your campaign as far as financing IDET? So I guess the first question that we got to ask is, um, you know, IDET, we know is part of the UN in some fashion. We had a, a big discussion about that a few weeks back with John. Uh, and uh, we never really came to a really good decision as to how it's it's linked directly to uh, to the UN. It's part of the UN somehow, or it's an affiliated organization, and certainly it, it, it gets an awful lot of direction from the UN, but uh, we don't really know th- uh, the direct connection, so it's hard to say how it's financed, uh, other than uh, a, a few things that we're going to try to figure out for ourselves. I guess the first question and uh, would be, and I'm going to direct this at Richard because it's not really written up very well, well, very detailed inside the book itself. It said that in a year they built Hatsumi Base on uh, White Island. So, Richard, uh, who paid for all that? The Russians in the U.S. So they just they just ponied up the money and and, and paid for the bill, right? Okay, was it was that Department of Defense money, or was that a special allocation from Congress and the Politburo, or what? Anything they could scrounge. With the Russians, the Russians being the opportunists they are, absolutely had money to do a lot of stuff. Uh, the U.S. had the technology and the money from, you know, basically mm-hmm. black ops budgets. Because we're talking a lot of money here. You know, this isn't a, a, like when you say scrounging up money, that kind of sounds like, you know, you're going over and hitting somebody up for a couple, you know, uh, you know, a million here, a million there. What do you think was the capital outlay to set up Hatsumi Base? I have no idea. If I had known the topic, I could have probably told you. Well, um, it's easy, actually, to find it on the Internet. Look up for basically that kind of thing, base, base expansions, hospital expansions, uh, usually in the, the hundreds of millions of dollars. And this probably, and if they're going to spend a billion dollars on uh, war machines, they're going to scrounge up a billion dollars for this kind of thing because they're going to get technology out of it. We know yeah. that. Oh, yeah. I know, I know for a fact that it'd be a billion easily just because you're having to deal with such things as you know the the cold weather gear and the fact that they're going to have to have supplies when you know you're snowed in for 6 months they're going to want to stack up for a couple of years right off the bat so yeah you're looking at easily a what is it 10 digit figure yep and the minimum big, well, yeah and the biggest problem is that it's there's there's a waiting period for you know things like hab habitats and so forth, 
you know, so the only way to do it is to steal. I mean, that's the, let's be honest. Uh, I, when I wrote up the stuff, they basically, uh, General, uh, well, this co director, he's retired, General Borden, uh, basically commandeered four halves from from McMurdo Sound and dragged them to the island when he after he arrived there. And then he grabbed three more off the tarmac in, in um, South Africa. Um, basically, and, and wrote big and kited big IOUs at that point to nah. where they belong to. <laughs> Think of the way World War II was uh, was funded. Yeah, but you had to make a that Paul Nunes had pointed out too that General Borden is an ex-Soviet era Russian Federation era uh, officer, and the Russian office army officers have learned to make do with nothing. And they learn how to scrounge. So he was actually the best choice for this. A guy who knows about Arctic operations. And he's, Russian, he's, he's Soviet air, so he knows how to scrounge for this stuff. Right. Well, okay. I, I, again, I mean, you're talking about pulling this habitat, that habitat. That's nowhere near billion, uh, you know, plus dollars. Okay, that has to come from somebody putting their pen to a document and saying, we're spending this kind of money on this project because it's important. The maps that you all gamers on a fringe-worthy see of Hatsumi Base, that takes, you know, like Army Corps of Engineers type stuff, digging through the ice, making the support so all of these, you know, layers of levels don't go collapsing in on itself. This is going to take time, manpower, money. Yeah, I mean, they're going to have to pull massive resources from around the world because they're going to be, you know, the U.S. alone is going to be like, okay, we need this Corps of Engineers. Yeah, we don't care if they're working on that bridge. We need them on this Antarctica pro- UN project pronto. And and the Soviets will, will offer their Arctic engineers, which, which they do have, to come down and help as well. And I'm sure they probably, in some cases, because most of Russia is under Arctic. Right. And according to, and according to the book, this was all done in a year. Hatsumi base from concept to execution was done in a year. That's that's fringe discovery year zero to one. Complete as in there's a working base. Not necessarily the not necessarily the geodesic dome. There that's gonna take years to do. because uh, Antarctica is the worst place in the world to build. <laughs> it is the worst weather you're ever gonna meet, and you only get maybe at best three months of good weather to build in. Uh, the fringe, you know, the expedition weather is more like four, four months, five months, because you you don't have to worry about you know being outside that too much. Yeah. But yeah, the base you, you have a working base in in a year. You could do that, but you're gonna have to st- basically you're you're, you're basically gonna commandeer every hab that's coming off the line, so to speak, and and, and shipping them down down there, because uh, it takes years to get those habs in the first place. <clears throat> the Pentagon was built in less than a year. Yeah, and and besides which, it says the specifically that the dome was built in a year. So I'm just saying, John, it didn't take years. It just took one year to get it done. Uh, if you had prefab dome waiting to go, there is no prefab dome waiting to go. <laughs> I don't say that's true, John. I do. I've looked into it. The build build the dome you, that we 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 posit the dome the the, the dome at the, at the South Pole took five years to build, and that was a prefab. <laughs> And don't forget the EPA stopped them at every turn. Are you talking about some specific real life dome? Yeah, the real the dome that was built down in the at the, at the South Pole it took them five years to build it. I have no idea what you're talking about. No, there the originally was a dome at the South Pole. It was built in the United States. Uh, Geodesic dome is is now more or less buried by the snow. Which is another reason why they've now built, gone to a structure that sits on top of the snow and ice, and you can move it. You know, so they don't like actually building in the ice because that's bad. <sighs> well, that's one reason why they built on top of White Island because there's actually rock there. Yeah, and be honest, you know, I, 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 it would look probably look more like Monroe Sound in the first year. And the domes would come later, and I would say multiple domes because not just one, not one giant dome because. It's a waste of space, uh, but smaller domes, more like, well, more like if you ever see that there's a uh, a great example is uh, there's a green there's a uh, 
of this dome greenhouse in England. It sits in a valley, but it's all domes, but it's basically, it's, it's a greenhouse made out of these various domes, and it's beautiful looking. I would imagine something more like that. Wasn't that in Zardoz? No, no, that's a different one. Uh, oh, gee. Uh, Zardoz was a force field. In any case, John, you know, look, I mean, if you want to change it in the next edition, that's fine. But for everybody who's listening to this, you know, they're they're dealing with the book that's there, okay? And the book says it's a dome, and they build it in a year, and we're saying it costs about a billion to do, and that's fine, okay? So anyways, so I, the question I asked myself when I was doing research for this was, how much does this base cost to operate? And so I did some research into a lot of the military bases, and I kind of picked this one that is uh, the Thule uh, U.S. Air Force Base. It's in the northern tip of Greenland. Uh, and because it is in an Arctic situation, they have to deal with the Arctic. It supports a fairly large number of people there. At one point, they were supporting 10,000 people. Uh, and so I figured this place probably would be a good example of what it would take. And they do a lot of scientific research. They do a lot of, of uh, military defense observations and things. And there's a couple of fighter groups that are sitting there. So the point here is, is that this is an active military base. It's not just a scientific outpost. And there's a lot of stuff going on. And this base is considered one of the more expensive bases to run it has a yearly expenditure of approximately a hundred million so i figured that that was a pretty good round number to go for as to how much it would cost to run hatsumi base on a yearly basis does anybody contest that no it actually sounds about in the ballpark for me too i mean yeah how much hundred million i would probably think at least double that why, because why you're so? going to have security, you're going to have all sorts of stuff going on. But why would that be different than the Air Force military base that we already have as an example? You're going to have civilians coming in, you're going to have tons of stuff. I would, whatever you figure the budget is, double it. That seems to be how the military works. So you think it would take $200 million to run Hatsumi base a year? I think you're spitballing that, Richard, but I because you haven't really given me any evidence. But that's fine. I'll work with that. I have no problem with that. Uh, I, I would imagine that part of that would be because it's, it's Antarctica, not the Arctic. Uh, especially Arctic is a place where there's a road where you can drive. You can drive away from the place if you need to. Well, the main thing for that is that they provided a ready source of supplies. So you know there is going to be some a lot of additional expenditures because they're going to have to airlift in you know their supplies. Now we do know they have a nuclear reactor. Uh, probably in the next edition, you, you did you say you're going to make it a thorium reactor rather than a tokamak? Yeah, a thorium reactor because it's it it runs in meltdown condition. So well, but the point here is is that it so we don't have to worry about them bringing in massive amounts of fuel to support the base because they'll have a reactor to provide power to it. Yeah, and the products of thorium is actually non-reactive. Great. <sighs> it's a hot water reactor. I, I look forward to it being in my car at some point. <laughs> uh don't do that. No. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, the other thing you, you have to understand, because I was talking with uh, both people who are familiar with military operations, Paul Nunes and Todd Zercher, both of them are, Todd's ex-Air Force, Paul's ex-Army, I'm also ex-Army, and looking at the support features, we figure for every fringe-worthy uh, person you know, there, you need at least six to ten people supporting them. In terms of you know just you know in various in various jobs and so forth, I mean you know that includes janitors and people cooking meals. I mean we're talking you know if you you know if you have say twenty French worthy, that's a lot of people start showing up. We figure when 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 you get at least ten teams down there, you're looking at maybe twelve hundred people. Well, yeah, you have to have like like John said, you have to have janitors. You got to have, you know, kitchen personnel, um, people because you're going to have to have people to write up and file all the reports. You're going to have to have the the assistance to the command staff, Borden and his secretaries, and all that. And Hatsumi is a twenty is a twenty four by seven operation as well. 
Okay, but what? But you're suggesting something that has no benefit of economies of scale, which there should be. As you get bigger, it should actually become more efficient. You should require less people per explorer, not the same amount. Well, I, I, thing is, every every team is going to have their vehicles. I, I imagine all the primary work on the on their on the team's gear and so forth is probably back in Alice Springs, where it's nicer and you don't have to worry about freezing to death sitting outside changing the oil. But um, but once it's dead, it's got to be loaded up and taken to Antarctica, and then it's got to be th- then further, you know, worked over and made sure everything, you know, survived the the airplane trip there. And you're gonna have to have a team for every team, a team of support personnel for every team to make sure that their their, their vehicles are working, that their gears, that they have all their gear, everything's packed, you know, th- that you know they have enough supplies if they're going on a long distance mission. Why isn't the team responsible for that when they're not actually out on the fringe pass? Oh, they are, but the thing is, they are also the team's also planning their mission. I mean, you know, the, the scouts have come back with information. Now the team's got to plan the mission. They got to go train. In fact, I, I from looking at the amount of training they probably have to go through, just you know, make sure they don't you know screw up something. You know, being trained in etiquette in various cultures, they probably don't even live down Hatsumi. It's only like an eight-hour flight from Alice Springs, so they're probably only flown in like two days, two or three days before the mission, and then they're sent out. At that point, it's it's a it basically it help it helps a lot in keeping the structure down. If you if you do it that way, then you only need enough support teams for say two or three teams at a time. Then you can cut down to maybe a couple of hundred people. Yeah. Well, it, it sounds like what you're suggesting is is that most of the staging is actually done at Alice Springs, and only when they're ready to actually go out on the mission do they airlift all their supplies, vehicles, and so forth from, uh, relatively speaking, temperate Alice Springs over to the Arctic. Which is fabulously expensive. It's much easier to have a dome. No, Richard, it doesn't make it, make it any cheaper. You still got to fly stuff in. Yeah, once. The only way to make it ch- no, 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 no. You still got to fly supplies in. Now, luckily, once we contact various people, we can get things, at least, at least food and sundries and various things through the through the fringes, either from the Victorians or from the Erders or whoever is, you know, appropriate tech. So you, you, you used to be guaranteed fresh food and stuff like that. So that helps cuts down the amount of flights you got to do. But you still... There's other things you still got supply, and the dome, and you know they they fly in supplies every they flew in supplies every year to the dome in south in the uh, South Pole, because they went through them. <laughs> oh, hang on. Why why wouldn't they simply go the fifty miles and then pick one of the alternates that are at the uh, that are at Earth Prime and why not? use one of those. The uh, the the world the world where uh, Schmertz tree is would be ideal for building a uh, assembly base and storage. Schmertz tree's not Richard. Richard, remember Schmertz tree's not there. Right, exactly. But the world is. <laughs> well, no, that's that's the po- that's the pocket stop. That's the junkyard pocket stop. That's that's not where the tree was. The tree was back on someplace else. Schmertz just did a redial and switched it. <laughs> well, he, he he messed with her memory. Yeah, so we don't really know where it was. For all we know, she got on the train and went someplace and came back on the train. Or never went on the train at all. We don't know anything. It was, we, we know she met, uh, you know, they messed with Sunyuri's memory. So whatever Sunyuri says is what she remembers, and that was clearly implanted. Sayuri, if you can get a beachhead in one of the more civil, in one of the more civilized alternates, you can get supplies from there too. I mean, we had the hunting lodge that actually would make you know once you clear out the make you know put up the the King Kong walls and and the gun gun and the gun site and, and all that guns and so forth. It'd be a nice place for a for a motor pool on the on the platform, you know. I've always like preferred the idea that you're going to do your primary staging for your missions is going to be there at hot city base you just need to get all your gear together and you know i mean i could and i agree that flying it back i mean big things like you know like vehicles it doesn't make any sense to fly them back to alice springs to to get them repaired unless of course they're really trashed 
Okay, uh, but if you're just doing maintenance on them, then no, they just they should stay there at Hot Simi Base in a motor pool, which hopefully has people there working on any number of vehicles. But you know, it, I I don't I really didn't want to talk about that kind of details about running Hot Simi Base. I just was just talking about the fact that it's what it would cost. And so Richard says 200 million. I started off with 100 million, which is considered expensive for a military base. So okay. The biggest cost is not actually going to be supplies. It's not going to be infrastructure. It's going to be personnel. If you you think you think those guys down there are going to be working for you know fifty thousand dollars a year? No, they're going to at least pull at least a hundred thousand dollars a year. That's, yeah, that type of environment. I hate to tell you, that would be hazard pay. That's like those greatest catch guys who make. They're out three months. A- crab fishing and they make what seventy five thousand dollars in three months because that's dangerous conditions. that's the whole point of the dome is to provide a safe environment for them to work well even then they're well they're also dealing okay let, let's take weather aside brush that aside fine they are in a climate controlled area underground what type of stuff are you bringing in off the fringe pats again you don't know what you're bringing there's a chance that you know there could be an alien artifact that could wipe out Earth that's the size of the pebble. Oh, cute. Look at this pearl I bought back. Or some parasite that that that, that has a longer gestation period than quarantine. These type of things that they're going out and finding, it's hazard pay for a lot of these guys. That's what's probably going to be as far as personnel being expensive. It's not that we have a broad number. It's that these people are dealing with stuff. They have no idea what it is. Well, I, I don't know if that's true or not, Trev. I mean, I think that you, you put up the price and say, this is what you're going to get paid to be here and see who bites on, you know. It, I mean, as, as long as there's a, a basic level of competency that's, re- that's going to be fulfilled, I mean, they could they could draw from people over the world. Some places in the world, they would be perfectly happy to be pulling down $30,000 in a hazardous condition. Lots of people in Russia, for example, would be perfectly happy to be work, you know, who are well-trained engineers, um, Indian engineers and computers that, guys. We know how much they get paid, and it's not that much. Well, that, that means you're guaranteed not to have a single American work down there then. Fine. It doesn't have to be. I mean, I, I, I know for a fact uh, during, when they were doing the, uh, the, the Alaskan pipeline, the, 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 the most recent one, uh, guy, there are some guys pulling down uh, close to $150,000 a year. Some guys. Some, some guys. Now, some guys, but the, but the cheapest was, like, 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 like uh, Trav said, in the, in the, in the $75,000 range. $75,000 is fine. That's not that much money. But if you got a thousand people working there, that adds up. Well, I didn't say there was a thousand people working there, but yeah, let's say there's a thousand people working there. Okay, but uh, so how much is that? I don't have the calculator. I got one. So uh, this is called the average hundred thousand because it averages out. I would say it averages out to hundred thousand. Now let's put it down to seventy-five thousand. I think that's a better number. All right, so seventy-five thousand a year. All right, times one thousand is seventy-five million. Okay, so and assume that that's sixty-seven percent of because uh, that's what it is on most military bases. Sixty-seven percent of the money is spent on personnel. So figure, fig, do the multiplication. Our, our ballpark, our ballpark was in the one hundred and thirteen. It's called one hundred and fourteen million. We're over the hundred million that I was first suggesting, but we're still way below the two hundred million that Richard is. So it's all good. Okay, so so you fi- you, fi- you figure between one hundred and two hundred million dollars that you 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 know depending on what ha- what's happening down there and if you had to do some repairs if something breaks you will see a higher spike one year but yeah you're looking at a hundred between a hundred and hundred hundred and fifty million dollars a year so we're all agreed right okay all right so let's move on <laughs> and the and I would imagine it'd be a little bit less for Alice Springs so Alice Springs may actually have more personnel because it is the uh, headquarters for for Unita, so you're gonna have a lot more personnel at, at at Alice Springs. Yeah, but those guys are getting paid military wages, so. Yeah. No, they're, they're, no, there are a lot of local contractors, a lot of Australians looking to make make, make the money, so you're not gonna get anyone cheap there. <laughs> we'll see. The one reason I'm bringing this up is because is that when when we 
when people play the game, okay, they don't see IDET. You know, you, there's a vision of IDET of what it's like, okay, and they're not. And, and IDET isn't really seen as a penny pinching organization, a place where they're going through on a, a wing and a prayer. The reason that their vehicles are so old and in some ways kind of patched together is because they were yanked out of museums because they were the only things that would work on the French fast. It's not because they couldn't afford good tech. It's just they didn't have tech to use until later on when they figured more stuff out. So uh, the money, you know, the vision that uh, I see in the book is is that IDET is a relatively well-funded and securely funded organization. You know, okay, so so again, my question is on an ongoing basis, all right, where's this money coming from? Yeah, and that's the tale. That's the tale we need to tell because, you know, typically UN operations are funded by the member nations directly. Not it doesn't even go to the UN. Basically, whoever is participating in that operation will will pony up the money. Since these are this is a very international, you can almost imagine that every country that has a fringe really will be putting in something to this operation uh, in there. So Zaire will pay so much, you know. Uh, Let me ask this time. If there'll be anything left of Zaire in six months. Would it be dependent on, okay, let's say China has three fringe-worthy, the U.S. brings in two, well, the five-member nations, what is it, U.S., Britain, France, Russia, and China, I believe are the five permanent member nations of the U.N.? Let's say each of them have, oh, three each. And all the other countries have maybe one or two at the most. I take it the more fringe-worthy that you're donating, the more you're going to be kicking in, your governments are going to be kicking in? Is that is that going to be the determination? Is, is that the more, the more that the fringe-worthy participate, the, the more it's going to cost your country? Uh, that or it could be a flat. It could be a flat yearly fee or something like that. Maybe it's just you know for every fringe. There's a membership fee to, to join, so to speak. It's that you know, you know, you, you got to pay. So maybe there is a fee. Maybe there's a basic fee to be part of the fringeworthy program, and this fee was actually reduced depending upon how many people fringeworthy people you put into the program to encourage people. To, to encourage their own citizens to join up once they're determined that they're fringe-worthy. So a bulk discount. That would perpetuate searches for fringe-worthy, even though the crystal keys are limited in the first couple years of, you know, Unita, because they only have, what, maybe one or two, I think, one that Sayuri found with Captain Oates, that Smirk so you have two, and you're looking through seven billion people trying to find Fringeworthy. It's going to be a a kick in the pants to Ida or Unita to hey, we need more keys because we need to find more Fringeworthy because that will, in the end, bring down this flat fee. The more Fringeworthy we can give in, that's the less we have to pay. Because you know, governments they're going to be cheap as all get out. Going, I don't want to shell out ninety billion dollars. Oh, if we find more fringeworthy, that'll knock it down to all oh, forty billion. You know, I'm using arbitrary figures here. So it's gonna it it will behoove to find more keys and more ways to find out fringeworthy to help these countries alleviate some of the costs. So they're gonna, you know, it's gonna be a kick in the pants for them to motivate them. I mean, for some countries, you know, like Bhutan, for example, okay, having a fringe worthy might actually cause them to gain financial aid. Bhutan, yeah, and up there in Himalayas, yeah, yeah, it's a tiny country. Oh, yeah, I, I to- oh Luxembourg, the sole Luxembourg uh, representative. <laughs> Right, because he joins up, you know, his country actually gets a plus bonus of money coming from IDET because they're they're, they're kicking back the, you know, they they're actually it doesn't zero out; it goes to the negative, and they actually get for aid for it. Yeah, uh, because I I sort of fit, uh, I mean now as far as how you'd set the price, I hopefully it would be done on a per capita basis, so that countries that have like lots and lots of people, like India, like. Uh, China, like Indonesia, uh, would would be paying uh, more 
than, uh, but it, it might also be based on like uh, gross national product. And that's another way of doing it would be gross national product to say, hey, you guys make more money, therefore you should give more money. Now, do we want to add the, um, the stick? Where we say if you don't participate, well, you know the uh, the the briefing we give you on the new tech and whatever that that comes from the fringe past that we've discovered all the new stuff and the science and and whatever, you don't get that if you don't pay into it. Does that uh, or you don't participate? Does that sound like something that the world you know whoever IDAT or IDA would 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 uh, enforce? That would be a little. No. Yeah, no, it wouldn't happen because first thing that would happen is whoever you put the stick on would then say, okay, you guys come back, and they'll pull those Fringeworthy from, from, Ida, from, 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 from Unita and, and recall them. You know, you don't, we, don't, we don't get the tech. You're assuming, of course, that they have Fringeworthy, right? Yeah, if they have Fringeworthy and, they're currently, and they decide they can't afford it this year, they may just recall them, and then now you got teams being broken up because guys, one or two members are being yanked, especially if they're from a very populous country like China or India. You're losing, you're you breaking up teams, and also there's that actually would be a case where they say, okay, we'll pay you this money if we have an all Chinese team. If you have enough for an all Chinese team, that wouldn't be a problem, would it? No, it wouldn't. But yeah, then that, that sort of then says, then who gets the tech? I remember it vaguely on the forums back in the day that you and maybe somebody else did a breakdown of, okay, based on too young, too old, too infirm, too... That was me. Oh, I yeah, thought that John broke, broke no, that down. No, it was Bruce. No, no. no it, it was me. Okay, well, how many, what was the percentage altogether of people due to too old, too young, too infirm, too physically or psychologically incapable... I can't remember it right now, but I we basically came out and I said that there was prob that there was in the world probably fifty thousand at the time. 50, well, there were fifty thousand people based upon the population of the world at that time that could be fringe worthy, and I figured that only one tenth of them would actually be available or willing to be fringe worthy. Uh, you know, uh, and therefore 5,000 was the maximum number we could expect to draw from Earth Prime, you know, uh, at any t at any one time with, after everybody who could be uh, a Frisbee person was identified. Yeah. Yeah, it would. But I mean, so in the in the first few years, the early, early campaign, you're not going to have that many people. It's like if you're going to be finding other Fringeworthy it will be from the other worlds. I mean, why? Uh, just, I mean, it's a lot easier to find Fringeworthy on your own world. Yeah, but it would it would necessitate then, and this is like meta gaming on the. It would necessitate saying, "Oh, we found more keys, and we found this new person that would, you know, facilitate be, you being able to bring in a new character." Yeah, we just found this person. They got fresh out of you know training and everything. It, it just. I don't know, with the people who are just kind of trying to find the right... It'll come to me. Ugh. I was working out the rates of discovery based on probability and so forth. With the basic level fine fringe-worthy, you know, 100 feet to 1,000 feet range, you're looking at maybe one fringe-worthy a month being found because it takes bloody forever to search a, search a city. You know, you got to do it on foot because you don't have the range. Once you get to the better better types of, of, of fine fringe-worthy, where you can get to a, a couple miles, suddenly it's like you, you can discover them maybe once a week. Once you get up to the 20 and 50-mile range, it's, once, it's every other day you're finding fringe-worthy in, in, in a metropolitan era, area. So the, the rate of findings will go up, as, but, trouble, it will go up but trouble is to get those better rates of finding. You need the keys for that. So the real bottleneck in finding Fringeworthy is getting crystal keys at the right level. Right. And that, well, why? Because you have to have a higher level crystal to find them at, at, a, at a greater distance? Oh, okay. That's even true. That's even true in D20. I don't yeah. yeah, yes, it was. Yes, it was in D20. To, get, to, to use the higher level the ranges, you had to have a higher level key. Okay. Well, 
Yeah. The yeah. thing is, in order to find those keys, unless you do what Richard said, which is Schmert walks through the gate and dumps a handful of them into somebody's hands, uh, you have to have people out on the, you have to have explorers out on the fringe pass searching to find them. So that means that those people are not out looking for fringe worthy. Though, of course, if you only have one key, then you only need really one person to go around doing that. And that, and, and that seemed to be uh, – this seems to fall more and more into the hands of, uh, uh, of poor Wee-Lai. Wee-Lai. Yeah. Uh, now, the thing is with that, um, you do have the off months. I mean, basically, once winter falls in, you're not going to Hatsumi. And th- that's you keep saying you keep saying that that's only true in the early camp in the very early campaign. In the very yes, but in the first, I'm looking at the first years. I mean, yeah, how many friends were you going to find in the first years during the during those five months where she can't you know be out exploring? She's on a world tour. <laughs> yeah, you know, she's the best person using the crystal key. So she's out there going going everywhere looking for fringe worthy. She's also on the late show. She's also doing promotionals. <laughs> She's on the weedy box. Yeah. The weedy box. And you know box. what that all means? Money for the UN. See, that's what I had mentioned in the group. It's like there's a way to find to get money for the I Unita. Celebrity endorsements. We pretty much said that the fringe worthy, once that comes out, oh my god, you're fringe worthy. You're like a combination of a sports star and a rock star combined. So you think that money goes to uh, uh, IDA instead of going to uh, the person uh, who's actually doing the appearances? Yeah, I was going to say, you know. Hold on. Licensing drives the world. The one thing about licensing was when NASA made amazing discoveries, they weren't allowed to sell them or correct, collect loyal, uh, royalties on them. The U.S. government made them give them to industry. And that's why NASA never had the funding. And the same thing goes when you start T-shirts, toys, TV shows, magazines, everything in the universe. Fringeworthy. Every kid wants every kid wants a Gordon Conrad action doll on his action bike. All right, so you're suggesting that uh, uh, the IDA is also going to have a uh, a sister organization called Fringe Corp, basically a uh, licensing corp for fringe worthy and anything to do with it. Yep. Oh, th- th- this actually falls in line with with the history of been working in the service world. So for the first year year or so. Uh, General Borden, or otherwise known as Director Director General Borden, is in charge of UNITA. He's basically he's running everything. Then the basically politics intrude, and a lucky happenstance, a uh, fringe worthy gets injured, and he's laid up in the hospital. He also happens to be a self made billionaire in China. Wow, what are the odds? Yeah, what are the odds? <laughs> Oh, if he he wouldn't he wouldn't have joined if he hadn't been told to join. Yeah, so yeah, so his name is Dao Zifeng, and he pulled strings, and he became the director general of Unita. And Borden gets gets made director general of interdimensional explorations, I mean, director of inter, you know of IDE. So you know, but 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 both these guys, they're the right people for the jobs. I mean, he, the, this guy, he grew up in Shanghai. He became a billionaire selling electronics and so forth. He has connections. He's the guy, he's, he's the guy who realizes, yep, we need licensing bureau. We need people who do licensing. We will, UNITA will become, you know, will become a licensing you know, thing out there. So we will make money from selling our licenses for figurines and guidebooks and movies. Everyone's going to be wearing a camera. And we're going to make movies using those cameras, and we're going to sell those movies. John, you realize what line comes to mind here from Spaceballs. Merchandising, merchandising, where the real money from the movie is made. <laughs> they'll, be, they'll, be the, they'll, they'll be the fringe-worthy channel. Oh, I wouldn't doubt I wouldn't, well, because remember, it was, we, we've been saying that they... You know, everybody follows them, and you know, I would not be surprised now with the what I lovingly call the 500 channels of that's out that there would be another niche 
channel, the Fringeworthy channel, or even just the Fringe channel. Just anything to do with Certainly it would be available as, as streaming video on a website, possibly a pay-per-view. Some of it would be pay video that you'd have to pay to, to watch. Yeah, in multiple languages, of course, because you know, the teams are in multiple languages. So, you know, and the and of course, there'd be at least one person told, "You're the cameraman. You get to carry a camera to get these get the shots not from the body cams, so we have some different shots." So, yeah, you can see that teams are being told to do things like take move, make movies, you know, sure, and the soap operas and the George R. R. Martin series. Oh, sorry. Yeah, it, it'd be it'd be worse than Big Brother. It'll be worse than Big Brother, you know. Uh, co- more more like Colony, I think. Now, hang on. Which now the movie Colony or the Colony, the interactive show about survival? I'm talking about the interactive show about uh, survival. Uh, the two seasons on the Discovery Channel. Yeah, because it was on Netflix, and they took it off Sunday after I watched two of second, uh, two of the episodes of season two. Oh, uh, yes, it was on. It, it was also on Netflix, but before that, it was on the Discovery Channel, both season one and season two. Yeah, I just uh, I it kept out when I was watching them make diesel fuel out of pig carcasses. It was great. I, I wish I would have been there. I could have helped them. <laughs> Yeah, but yeah, you can imagine them doing. You know, you, you want to see see a Rome, Pax Romana. You know, I could even see someone paying them lots of money to do a Big Brother in Rome. Right. Well, and of course, you you know, there are certain there are certain places in the world where there would be a lot of uh, happenstance, um, uh, star and uh, Showtime level types of uh, adult content. Oh yeah. I mean, just 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 walking down the street in places, certain places would show lots of stuff that I'm sure you could get a, put on a premium channel. Fringeworthy app, yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah. We're not even talking about interspecies sex at this point either. No, no, no. We're not talking about that. I'm just simply saying that there are cultures out there that don't have the Victorian attitude towards sex and nudity that is prevalent on this world, and there would be just lots of happenstance types of stuff like that. It would be National Geographic, uh, the specials uh, that that are done in modern cities, just people have a different way of uh, dressing. So... Or not dressing in that in the case of what I'm talking about, sure. Okay, so uh, we've got uh, pay for video, uh, pay for for view video and photographic feed, merchandising. You know, get your own little Muscovy playset. Yeah, well, I have the the Fringeworthy playset, the Ed Powers um, a Meller playset downstairs. Uh, I, I my son wanted to take it apart and play with it. So I had to run off to uh, Toys R Us very quickly and buy him an identical set <laughs> so I could keep that one intact. <laughs> so that was, a, that was a very quick purchase I had to make. Fortunately, he had lots of other toys to, to entertain himself in the meantime. Now, we know that there's going to be, of course, a lot of donated equipment from a lot of different countries that, uh, um, or I should say, corporations who want to say that, hey, the Fringeworthy are using, you know, our equipment, but are is it going to be done that way, or is it literally they're going to be paying a licensing fee to donate their equipment? Well, and also there's a there's a promotional where you can put your logos on things. Especially vehicles and signs, whatever that the Fringeworthy would stick on their vehicles. Oh, great! So the so the Fringeworthy are going to wear suits. They're going to look like Greg Kinnear from Mystery Men. Oh, great! Yeah, yeah. Uh, the thing though, you got to put quotation marks around donate because it's usually sponsorship, and they may actually you may actually see direct sponsorship of certain teams from certain countries. Like, say there is a Chinese team, they get sponsored by Alibaba. That sounds so incongruous. It's just, it's just it's a Persian name with a Chinese team. That's all. Yeah, well, yeah, Alibaba is a, is the is the Chinese version of, of eBay, and it's up there in in value. I mean, it they just went public. All right, I didn't know. Ah, it just gotcha. I just say though, know, it's it's <laughs> it just sounded odd. Yeah. <laughs> oh yeah. 
Oh, and folks, if you want to make your own Muscovy, you pick up a model of a Russian BTR-80 and take the turret off. And that's a Muscovy. And I just found one that has that's got that's 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 uh, radio controlled. Hmm. <laughs> nice. All right. Well, yeah. And then you and then you can take marshmallows, paint them like Melwar, and run them over. Yeah. Yay. <laughs> yeah. You know that those creepy crawler sets are really good for that too. Oh, I re- oh God, I remember those. Actually, in time for Easter, you get some peeps. Use your peeps instead. Use peeps instead. They're more anthropomorphic. Okay. All right. So we got so we got endorsements. We got donate equipment by uh, uh, let's say uh, 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 allied corporations. Okay. There's also going to be research grants, right? Oh, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And and what they're bringing back can be patented and sold. Yeah, that brings a good question up. Who owns the who owns the patent rights? If Unita splits off and becomes an affiliate, Unita owns them. So basically you're saying Unita becomes an semi-autonomous operation then. Because that's the only way they'd be allowed to keep it. It becomes very wealthy from the patents and the manufacturing and the royalties. Yeah, well, it would depend an awful lot on where they got, you know, what where they got what they're patenting. If they're actually bringing in something from another world where they have their own patents, then they guess then they should be paying a licensing fee back to the person who originally created it, and then they could be they would be licensed to produce it here on uh, Earth Prime. We talked about that on another uh, on another uh, podcast about that. So, but yeah, but if it's something of course this lost tech. You know something from the fringe paths that nobody you know can lay claim to. Then yeah, sure, that's gold. But uh, that falls into your fringe corp thing again, where uh, a legal entity would be able to get a patent on something and then either exploit it directly or license its exploitation by all these other countries out there. And don't no, forget I'm that Tremorin just... left huge stocks of the oddest things everywhere. And what what company wouldn't want? A Tremelorn hairbrush with 200 colors and other things attached to it and patterns and whatever. One shop would be, people could do anything they wanted with it. But can that be manufactured? No. It's no. an artifact. But if they so, find 500,000 of them. But still, if $500,000 is dropping the bucket in the market, it's, they'll sell for 1000 each, if that, or more. Well, yeah. So we're gonna we're gonna bring salvage back from the fringe paths, and we're gonna sell it on uh, uh, on eBay or uh, Alibaba for the for the for the highest for the highest bidder, and then all that money goes into the IDET uh, general fund. Well, here the, here the about this tech, it's gonna take the IDET scientists years for them to clear. Okay, this is all that it does. It doesn't do anything weird. They're going to want to make sure that they know that this stuff is safe for public consumption, and that will take years. I'm not seeing any fringe tech come out like that year one, year two. I see that three, four, five, and on. That's absolutely great. That's exactly what I would think. Yeah, I because you're not going to sit there. Do you really want to be responsible if you sell these hairbrushes and let's say you don't know that if they're exposed to certain pollutants on this earth, you comb your hair and all of a sudden tentacles grow out of your head. They didn't know this and they released it to the public. No, they're going to want to make sure <laughs> before they oh yeah, let's just sell this. Yeah, it's a cute idea. No. <laughs> and and that's very true, Trav, but it's, it's even more true if the, these uh, hairbrushes are actually like Pikachu eggs and little fuzzy aliens come out and oh aren't they cute but uh, don't get them wet and feed them after midnight they're going to want to make sure that they take one pick it apart entirely find out what makes it tick no surprise (laughs) don't forget some of the in uh, portals 3 where the guy imports a dog for his daughter a small puppy and then eventually it grows wings, and then they begin to spread. Yeah, we'll have the we'll have tribbles. At some point, we'll have tribbles of some sort. 
Hey, as long as, as long as they're good eating, it's not a problem. Wow. Okay. Yeah, well, Zeke, we're going potting and triple. Uh, we're going possum and triple hunting. Yep. Just just feed them purple weed. No. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but but though, though I imagine that there would be a real Jurassic Park. Sure. Let's I, I, so say the research grants, the, the restoration of extinct species, there would be people willing to pay IDET to bring those species that are clearly identified as being what we think they are back to Earth. When did passenger pigeons go extinct? I think maybe a little later, maybe late 1800, or no, no, 19. Yeah, like the 19th century, like late 19th century, I thought passenger pigeons died out. Passenger pigeons, dodos, raptors, anything. There's, yeah, there's the, a distinct the, possibility that passenger pigeons are still available on Victorian yeah. Earth. Yeah, Trav, the 19th century is the 1800s. Yeah, right. I keep, yeah, yeah. I, And, and and Bruce, you inspired me. I've added a new section to the Savage Rules Rules Fringe Corp. Yay! Woo-hoo. All right. Well, there's a uh, here's another thing for research grants: launch of solar exploration equipment. You know, we talked about this again. NASA, you know, uh, there's you know they're going to want to pay people to put stuff into orbit at a, at a, a thousandth of the cost. Roscosmos, the ESA. I mean, all these guys would want to get together. It might be just enough for them to actually form something like I postulated the WAXA, the World Aerospace Exploration Agency. You know, it's 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 a conglomerate. It's more more like an association of of the different space agencies. But as a united front, they can get a better deal than as individuals. Well, yeah, because basically, um, folks, what we've determined is that. The majority of the cost of a space program is getting stuff up into space. Now, if you sit there and drive 100 miles from your prime, you're at the system platform. You can just, you know, as long as you get your trajectories right, you can shove a satellite out a portal on the moon. And if it hits the right trajectory, it'll go into a nice Earth orbit. You just save all sorts of rocket fuel. You still got to build, you know, it still got ha- still has to have a, you know, you're still being a rocket, but getting off the moon, it's a lot easier and you can bring equipment because the one thing, you know, this thing that most people don't realize, but lunar soil can be processed into more or less rocket fuel because it's made of aluminum oxides awesome. and you can process, yeah, aluminum oxide rockets. So you don't need to bring any fuel. You set up a, you set up a refining plant and let it make your fuel. Right around the cast, folks, because my heart science. Bleh. <laughs> yeah. Oh, I learned this from Kerbal Space Program. Okay. Um, but you but you also said in a previous podcast that that organization is going to want it to be run and and staffed primarily by Earth primers, not by the fringeworthy, because that's you know it's our solar system. It's not Earth primer fringeworthies. They like to actually have their own staff of astronauts. They can go out there and do this stuff because well, training to be a fringeworthy and training to be an astronaut are about the same. They're both difficult and they take forever. You know, so if you could be well, astronaut training takes years. Fringe worthy, yeah, yeah, and you know, and it's be and trying to train fringe worthy to be also a- astronauts, you better off off having de- a dedicated crew. So yeah, you will have some have these guys poaching, uh, fringe worthy, you know, especially if they're Air Force or, or Air Force or people with necessary skills, they may try to poach them from uh, Unita and get them into their team. I mean, that's definitely, you know, they can get the money together. They can probably get a few fringe rate of their own to do these operations. Right. Well, I, I agree. I'm just saying is that they're going to, tr- they're going to try to, uh, you know, if they have man bases, they're going to want to, to try to get them staffed by, by people who are not fringe worthy, who are real, who are astronauts, who are professional astronauts. Okay. Because as you say, it's going to take a long time to get the fringe worthy trained to be astronauts. Now the fringe worthy are always going to be necessary because they're going to be, you know, going out there on the Mars and, you know, changing the, uh, the, 
whatever needs to be changed or, or uh, with with the the Mars rovers and such. But I, I'm just saying I see the fringeworthy as being more of a support rather than the primary explorers of the solar system because that's exactly what you guys said in a previous podcast. Yeah, I mean, basically, these are guys, they can actually show up with some Bigelow inflatable Habs and set them up and have, the, and basically, when you land, you're, there's an existing base waiting for you. Right, right. So they're, they're going to be the support. They're going to be kind of the, the, uh, the backbone, the just-in-time delivery service. But uh, I would say the biggest thing would be getting people onto the moon. Because as soon as you get human beings onto the moon, from that point on, they can explore the rest of the solar system because you could just keep you know, giving them more and more gear, especially if you're launching it from, let's say, Mars or if you have plenty of time uh, from uh, Vesta, which is way out there on the asteroid belt, but it's, it's zero gravity, so anything that you launch takes almost no impulse to get it to wherever you want it to go to. Well, it's what you mean. You mean talking about the microgravity? Yeah, yeah. It's like one tenth of a g. It's enough gravity you can you can walk around. Just don't jump. Yeah, yeah. The point is is that you're going to be sending packages with rockets to, or uh, probably better things like ion drives or whatever. Uh, because they can, they won't require that enormous seven miles per second launch from the Earth. But one problem with the moon base thing, because I'm looking at the D20 book, there's no moon. There's Titan, there's Io, two Venuses, three Mars, and Vesta, but there's no moon. Are you talking, there's no, there's no warp on the moon. That's right, there's no warp on the moon. Right, okay. No, I, I understand that. I, uh, but I'm saying is that by getting people to the moon... Okay, once you get people to the moon, then they can, from there, start exploring the rest of the solar system much more effectively. So, yeah, you, you might have, a, bay, you might have a, a launch facility on Mars, or you might have a launch facility on uh, Vesta, okay, supplying the Earth-Moon base until they get themselves set up so that they can start launching off and exploring other parts, and then it just builds from there. Yeah, it looks like Vesta... Is ho- is hollowed out, even though we know now it isn't, because um, we visited it recently. Uh, but still, it's it, it just a thought crossed my mind. Okay, so you need a you need a if you can do launches from Earth and you need something to launch from, and there's nothing on the Moon. I'm looking at Vesta. How hard it would be to move Vesta? Oh, okay. Well, there that's a thought. You could move Vesta. Uh, you put a they say slap a whole bunch of ion drives on it, or use gra- or use gravity tr- tugs, whichever you know, whichever me- methods you want to use. Gravity uh, tugs, but yeah, yeah, yeah. Basically, you place satellites in front of it, just close enough that their gravity pulls on Vesta and pulls it off orbit, and you just keep on tugging that little tug. But it takes years to move it, though, in that that method. But you know, th- that's what they ma- they plan to do with asteroids that may actually meteors or asteroids that may hit the Earth is use a gravity tug and just pull it. Just that little bit you need to be pulled out of out of out of the way and just let it go on past. Okay. Well, I, I think that if they were actually going to 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 do this, they would actually use a bunch of ion drives because they could get, they could get them. Yeah, you can keep them supplied too. You know, more or less infinite fuel tanks. Right. Or if you if you wanted to, you could just take locks and just have some big you know just have a big engine and just keep blowing it out the back of the, of the, of the the thing because that stuff is safe and the uh, and it has the one one of the uh, most um, high efficiency engines is the uh, hydrogen locks engine. Yeah, I, I, I went to a lecture on it at, at DragonCon, and they he said is that you know we we pretty much got this engine to as high efficiency as such an engine as possible. After that, we really have to start talking about things like fusion, fusion drives. There's thrust and there's ISP and there's delta V and those all sorts of things and it depends on what you're doing with it. Sometimes the, those ion engines are better off because they because you really don't need to go fast. You actually want to go slow if you're going to move an asteroid into orbit around Earth. So, but then with asteroid, but then you have the option that you can't do it with normally with 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 ion drives. You can use mercury for the working fluid. 
Okay, that's that's what. Okay, propeller head. Okay. <laughs> yeah, mercury, mercury ions. Mercury is a dense liquid. It's a dense metal liquid, and mercury ions are perfect because they give you really good thrust. Trouble is, you can't put more than a you know few kilograms, and that's it. But if you have it, if you have a portal there, you just come out there every so often with a ten gallon bucket, ten gallon drum, and pour it in. There you go, ten ga- ten more gallons of mercury. You know, and you, you know, and you get some really good thrust off of that, off the iron engines. All right, I'll leave it to you to to plan the re the the repositioning of Vesta. Okay. Now I'm still working out how to restart the sun after it, after it dies, but you yeah. Know. Okay. All right. All right. Well, the point is, I think it's a good idea that that as part of the uh, Earth Prime's uh, solar exploration plan to reposition Vesta to a more uh, advantageous position as long as we can convince Earth it's not going to come crashing into the planet and cause all life to be go extinct. Yeah. Of course, by that time, we'll probably have figured out how to use uh, Tremelin plastic to make a, make a space elevator. Uh, I don't think so. I think this would probably be done within the first 20 years. Don't you? Moving that well, see that that falls into what kind of tech to be fine. You know, it does fall into into what kind of weird tech to be fine because why can't it be done with conventional technology? Uh, Vesta, not strong enough. Vesta uh, Vesta is is round, which means it's got enough mass to form to make itself round, which means it's in the. Not the billions of tons, not the trillions of tons. It's in the quadrillion of tons in mass. We got nothing that can move that. You put a, you put a locks engine on there. It's sort of like uh, your child trying to push a Mack truck with a, with, a, with with you know a little baby trying to push a Mack truck with a finger. It's not going to go. It's not going to do much. It's a little baby can certainly do that if the Mack truck is sit, sitting on a CO two bearing, a CO two bearing in the middle of an ice rink. You're in zero G, man. Yeah, but it'll take that that little kid a while. Remember, because the harder she pushes, she's, the truck is going to be pushing back. I'm sure it can be done. I keep coming back to this, John. Is that you know? Don't be the naysayer, okay? You know, <laughs> be you know, be, be the one who says. I think the idea of moving Vesta is a great idea, and you came up with it. So good, good idea, John. Let's do that, okay? All right, figure but it not out. Not in twenty years, not not next twenty years, but you know, it would be done. Know. It would yeah, be whatever done. it takes. You know, I'm sure somebody, hopefully, somebody out there, you know, uh, could work it out for us. Okay, and, you, and that way you can keep concentrating on the next edition of Fringeworthy. Yeah. The, oh, by the way, the, the they worked out the mass of Vesta. It's two point five nine times ten to the twenty kilograms. That's a little bit of weight. Yeah, it's it's pretty big. Yeah, I got gotcha. you. I mean, we can't we can't see it with our our, our, set, um, our I'm sorry our telescopes. So it's a dot, but you can still see it. So that's that's pretty big. Anyways, uh, okay, so we got. I don't got know about your telescope, Bruce, but my telescope. <laughs> you seen I, that monster I've got? Yeah. Reflector. Uh yes. All right. So okay, so we've got launching of solar exploration equipment, and then of course the supply of extra Earth solar bases and equipment. How about uh, testing of dangerous materials on worthless worlds on the fringe pass? Any any money in that? Well, it could be Mars, but we could also like go on you know that all those worlds that you say another useless swamp. Yeah, because you uh, test. Yeah, because you actually want to test something like that in an Earth environment, not on Mars. You actually want, you know, now, of course, we have to leave out anything that's radio- radioactive. Sorry, we're not, that ain't going to go. Right. But anything, but anything else, chemicals, nothing biological, though, unless it's, unless it's, uh, unless it's more than, unless it's a multi-cell organism. So basically, you, you're limiting it to chemicals, you, you more or less. Just freeze it, John, remember? You could freeze it. Yeah. Negative two hundred degrees. Yeah, as long as it doesn't, yeah. Well, we, we, yeah. As long as you freeze it to a point where it looks like it's dead, right? You know. So yeah. 
But I was actually thinking about more along the lines of the military, um, you know, providing a lot of these uh, new weaponry and such that they want they want to try out, but they don't want to try it out where prying eyes can see, and so they send it out on the fringe paths to some world and. Interesting enough, because I was doing research on weaponry and so forth, because uh-huh. I figured that after a while the XM8 would be supplanted by a new weapon. The testing wouldn't, a lot of this testing would probably actually be done by the gun manufacturers who don't want anyone to see what's going on. Okay. You know, because they're, they're all bidding for contracts. And what better way to find out what's going on, you know, testing special weaponry than would be to actually, you know, gift the fringe really with a prototype weapon to go out there and play with. Yeah, that's basically what the, that's what the XMAs are. They're prototype. They're they're five year old or six year old prototypes being gifted to them. <laughs> and the XMAs are what? Oh, the the rifle, the XMAT rifle. Oh, okay. All right. This is Bruce Sheffer saying there are a million million worlds out there, so go explore them. This is John Ryer saying keep your powder dry and keep those cards and letters coming in. This is Blix. Don't hate the game, hate the players. This is Richard Tahoka. Wait till you see what's coming next. And this is Trav. There's a reason why it's called gaming. It's for having fun. Yo, brothers. This was the Tri-Tech Games Podcast. You know the drill. It's protected under the Creative Commons License 3.0. No commercial reproduction, no derivatives, and sucker. You best attribute this to the folks at TriTech Games. And if you don't, we'll be after your sorry butts. Cause we're some bad mothers. Hi, this is Trav of the Travcast, Hour 3 of Blind Wolf's Rubber Room Association on DementiaRadio.org, Tuesdays, 8 to 9 p.m. Eastern.